Hi, it's drummer programmer Jimmy Braylauer, and you're listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast with Robert Miller. Everyone has a dream. Robert Miller is a musician who had a dream to become a rock star. He followed his dream, and he succeeded. If you're ready to pursue and succeed at your dream, then listen up and get inspired and motivated to take action today. Welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Follow Your Dream podcast with listeners in 200 countries. I'm Robert Miller, your host. My guest today is the amazing Mark Rivera, a musical genius. He plays all the saxophones. He plays the flute, keyboards, guitar, percussion, and get this, the hammer and chromium steel pipe. I love that one. He's also a fabulous singer. He just does it all. He's been a star in Billy Joel's band for over 30 years, and he's also toured with Ringo. And he's played with a host of others, including John Lennon, Peter Gabriel, and Simon and Garfunkel. And most important to me, he's from Brooklyn. And in the middle of this episode, as I do with all my musical guests, Mark and I are gonna do a song fest we're actually going to do two song fests this time around. In the first one, Mark has given me a list of his Desert Island songs by other artists. So we're going to listen to a little bit of those, talk about them. You'll get the story as to why Mark chose them. And in the second song fest, we're going to play some of Mark's best works. So you're going to hear Mark through and through. And you know that in every episode, of this podcast, I like to feature a song of mine at the beginning and at the end, underneath the introduction and at the end. And I always try to make it relevant somehow to my guests. And in this instance, I have chosen the song, Hey Jake, from the album East Side Sessions by my band Project Grand Slam. Why did I choose this? Well, this song is a 60s rocker through and through. And when we recorded it, I said to my sax player, I'd like you to channel, you guessed it, Mark Rivera in your solo, which I think he did. So check it out. So Mark Rivera, welcome to the Follow Your Dream podcast, baby. Robert, thank you so much for having me. I love your introduction. And uh, you only chopped off 10 years with my time with Billy. I'm with Billy 41 years, not over 30. <laughs> I wanted to make you look younger, okay? <laughs> 41 years, unbelievable. All right, but you know, I focused a little bit. I was making a little joke about Brooklyn. But, you know, there is something about growing up in New York City that just creates something in great musicians. Tell me about how Brooklyn influenced you. Well, Brooklyn was this melting pot of every ethnicity, style of music, the taste of everything from uh, the way we, we dressed to the foods that we ate. It was this melting pot of people. And as we spoke for, for a second before, we had the Brooklyn Fox where Murray the K was showing bands. We were, I was 13, 14 years old going to these shows. If you were in Brooklyn, it was a 20-minute train ride to the Fillmore. And God knows how many weekends I spent there. To me, it was the perfect place to grow up. And if I may say so, at the perfect time. I was 14 and 67. And I don't have to tell you about that, how fertile that, that ground was. I mean, the Beatles only put out two records, Sgt. Pepper and Magical Mystery Tour. Cream put out Fresh Cream and Disraeli Gears. Hendrix put out Are You Experienced and Axis Bold as Love the same year. Proclaham, The Doors. It was just everything was coming at you. And the thing about Brooklyn, in my opinion, was that everybody got along. Even if you didn't get along, you punched the guy or if you liked his girlfriend or whatever, you worked things out. Uh, we weren't busy clicking on a phone and, and trying to imagine what it would be like to be socially connected. We were connected. I agree with you. We had bonds that our friends, I mean, I have friends to this day. Uh, my dear friend, John Grado, Grado Headphones, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He and I know each other 65 years. And we talk and we, it's everything that's still relevant, the music, the family, the love. And um, if I had the choice to be raised a thousand times by a thousand parents, I would pick the same block, 41st Street, between 8th and 9th Avenue in Brooklyn, and my parents, Dater and Angela Rivera, every single time. 
Listen, great to hear that. And you're right. There was something about New York City in the 60s. The music was happening from everywhere, from so many different places. I grew up in Queens. Okay. I was kind of one of the outer boroughs. All right. All boroughs rock, brother. <laughs> I used to take the bus and go into the city. And of course, 48th Street was the street at that time with all the music stores, yeah, yeah. Manny's and Sam Ash and all of that. And I loved going in and just going through those stores. They didn't want you to touch the instruments because, you know, you were just a kid. You weren't going to buy one of these things. But <laughs> I remember just doing that so many times. It was a wonderful era to be growing up and to be into music. Don't you agree? Absolutely. I will blow your mind now. Speaking of 48th Street, I'm walking into Manny's again, 67 maybe. And as I'm walking in, rather, and two guys are walking out. And the first thing I noticed was a pair of green suede boots. And I thought they're the coolest thing in the absolute world. And who's walking out of out of Manny's? Al Cooper. <laughs> I swear to God, Al Cooper's walking out of Manny's on 48th Street. You just mentioned 48th Street. Right. And these are the influences. Blues Project. There was before Blood, Sweat, and Tears. Before it was all happening. And the, the, the great part of what I feel is the radios, the, the DJs at the time, I mean, it's Roscoe, uh, Scott Muni, all these guys, and it was FM was really starting to happen, and they played what they want, what they thought was hip. They were able yep. to play. There were no gatekeepers. Thank you, thank you. It's, a, it's the exact word Jimmy uses. Old Jimmy Braylauer always uses that. Nobody, nobody's standing there. They, everything was out. Hey, like I mentioned before, I saw Cream headlining with Richie Havens and the Soul Survivors. I had seen Judy Collins and and uh, who was it? Like a uh, the soft machine it was these insane groups of people but the radio was playing all the country joe and the fish would follow joan baez you know i've told this story a couple of times on the podcast but it's worth mentioning now first time i ever went to the fillmore which was the mecca of course in manhattan right, right. the bill was miles davis opening for the who okay wow. and it was <laughs> mind-blowing because the two audiences were completely different, but it was a wonderful way to go about it because each band's audience kind of were introduced to the other band's audience. That melting pot kind of concept. Yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. Who who was going to see Miles? Like a bunch of like, you know, not it wasn't just jazz heads because he was already into Bitches Brew, if I remember. Right. right that was the Bitches Brew era. So that's why he was playing in the big places like the Fillmore. That whole time, with Jack Johnson was at one of the songs on the record. I'm trying to it was in that I, era, definitely. Yeah. Okay. So what I'm thinking is that was a, a, a Miles coming into that, and the Who. Look, not to get into the black and white thing, but if you would have had the opportunity to ask Miles, name five great rock and roll bands, he wouldn't even think of the Who. That's right. <laughs> but Bill Graham did, right? It was incredible. You know, it's funny, but back then, promoters would mix and match in that way. And it pains me because, and I've talked about this on the podcast a lot with different guys, everything now is homogenous. They try to put bands together that all sound alike or in the same right. genre. I thought that old way of doing it was a great way. It was the best. It was the absolute best because it did two things. First of all, you you got a cross-section of people that would not probably have been anywhere near the other band's uh, performance. Right. But more importantly, it got the young people at the time to hear other bands, to get the opportunity to be uh, to be influenced, not affected, right. affected, but influenced by this great music that a person like Bill Graham, who was a pioneer, a visionary, he was a, a bit of a pain in the butt <laughs> in certain ways, but you had this great music coming out of it. I remember... Uh, I went to see Creedence Clearwater Revival. I think if you read the book, I'm sitting there. I run up after Deep Purple plays, right? And mm -hmm. I run up because, you know, you could see for the second, uh, you could see you could see if there wasn't, uh, all the seats were full. I went down to like the 12th row and I sat in there. Lo and behold, next to me, John Lord is sitting in the audience listening to Creedence Clearwater. And I'm like, my mind was blown. Yeah. You know, the Fillmore East brought so many people together. Dear friend of mine, Don Perry, Went to see Jethro Tull when he was 14 and got a letter to Ian Anderson because he was a Clive Bunker fan. Fast forward, he's been the drummer for Jethro Tull for over 40 years. Isn't that amazing? All right. Speaking of over 40 years, I want to hear how you met Billy Joel. 
I have to say, I got introduced to Billy Joel, and I didn't know it was Billy Joel because he had that band called The Hassles. Oh, yeah. And they had that song, You Got Me Humming. When's the last time you played You Got Me Humming with Billy? Uh, maybe just fooling around in the sound check, maybe within the last eight months. Okay, but you never played it in concert, did you? No, no, we haven't. <laughs> I, I'll tell you what. I don't know what you got. I'll be right there. The, well, you know I play with Sam and Dave, so that's I played that with them. So Really? Uh, it's just a crazy world. Uh, I was introduced to Billy through his guitar player at the time, David Brown a brilliant guitarist. He and I did some demos for a band called Cash that became Tycoon, which is how I met Mutt Lang, which is a whole, there's so many layers to this onion. But David and I were just playing some gigs in a band. We called them the Late Boys because we never showed up on time. It was <laughs> Ivan Elias, may he let rest in peace. Michael Braun, who became the drummer for uh, Hall & Oates. David, who you know from Simon and Garfunkel, Bob James, Billy Joel, obviously. We just had a band. And one night we were playing out at my father's place in Long Island. I, I forget what town it is in Long Island, but we're planning to just do this set. And Doug Stegmeyer, may he rest in peace. I hope I don't say that more often than I didn't need. It's just so, so incredible as time's going on, Robert, how many times I say that. Those people, yeah, I know. Yeah. But um, so Doug Stegmeyer was in, in the audience. And at the time, Billy and Richie were going separate ways. They just had. They were just parting ways. That's what happens at certain times. So Doug heard me, and he knew Billy was thinking about getting, he had to have a new sax play because there's no way you could do a Billy Joel show without all those great Richie Canada idents and great solos. I mean, it's as simple as that. So they wanted a guy to do it. So Doug said, come out to the place, blah, blah, blah. Learn this song, that song, the third song. I had to learn Only the Good Die Young, uh, maybe a uh, big shot, but the third song that I had to learn was uh, Just the Way You Are. And at the audition, after the first two, we played Just the Way You Are. I played the solo. Great Phil Wood solo, iconic alto solo. And the end of the solo, he stops the band. I'm like, oh, crap, did I screw it up? He <laughs> comes up to me. He gives me a kiss on the cheek and said, as long as you want a gig in my band, you've got it. And he's wow. kept his word, and I believe I've kept mine. So we just have a uh, – the, the thing about Billy and myself, if I, I, I won't speak for him, but we have a very similar taste in music, in particular uh, traffic, all R&B. He loves Otis Redding. I love – my guy was was Levi Thubbs, Thubbs from uh, the Four Tops, uh -huh. the Rascals, Cream, Hendrix. Again, this melting pot of great music, R&B meets psychedelia. That's yeah. to me. Think about it. Nineteen sixty-seven. You had I've been loving you too long. Was that sixty-seven, sixty-eight? Uh, Otis Redding, right yeah. around there. And you had acid from from the West Coast. You had so much coming together. But, you know, for anybody that hasn't seen you playing with Billy Joel and, you know, you guys got that residency at Madison Square Garden that's going to go on forever. And good for you about that. But one of the great things about that, not only is your playing magnificent, and I'm not just saying that because you're on the show. But thank you. But you're front and center in that band. He lets you be another star in that band, which I think is very generous on his part. Not all headliners do that. But you make the most of it, and you really do carry that show. Well, I thank you, first of all, for your kindness. But the thing that I think that Billy is, I won't say best at, because his best is his songwriting and his singing, but what makes him such an amazing leader or a great person to work for is, is the same thing that makes a great corporate head, a person who's in charge of a company or a, a team, is knowing you hire guys 
Uh, Bill Belichick. I'm, everything to me is sports related. Bill Belichick. Right. Three words. Do your job. Yeah. That's how he gets the great teams. And Billy, he's got, at this point, we they've always been like great riders. This band is all thoroughbreds. And Billy allows each of us to come out. Crystal Taliaferro, who I've been with now for 30 some odd years, 33 years. Mike Del Judas, tremendous singer and talent. Tommy Burns has the greatest ears. It's like I'm in the greatest bar band I've ever been in in my life. <laughs> That's a big bar that you play in each month. I'll tell you that. Well, we call it the uh, the Madison Square Dinner Theater because we got the thing <laughs> dialed in. But Billy allows us to run, and that's the beauty of it. Not unlike Ringo, his MD now is coming on 29 years, I believe, and he wants the best of what he's got. He doesn't tell people, oh. You can't do that because you'll outshine me. You have Edgar Winter doing Frankenstein, which the place blows up. You have Steve Lucas to do it, Toto. You have Colin Hay, whose songs go over massively. It's it's unbelievable. And Ringo's always like, it's almost like he's he's saying, letting the line out, letting it out, because that's how you get the greatest results. But to your point about Billy, you know, in the book I say, when the light shines on, you get in the light and you and you and you do what you have, what you can. And then you have to recede back into the shadow. And it's not a shadow. I open, I open never seems like I'm saying, oh, man, um, I'm, I'm the guy in the back. I'm proud to be there. I'm a supporter. When I'm in the background, if I figure right, you still see me smiling. Oh, you're there, baby. You're never in shadow. Well, uh, <laughs> my point is, Billy's music allows us all to shine. And I get to play those iconic sax bits, and I get to and interpret them as I will. But the, the greatness is the greatness of the songs that have been there for 40, 40 plus years now. It's incredible. Yeah, it is remarkable. You know, I, I speak to a lot of guys on this podcast that grew up, not just grew up, but became of age and became, you know, big hits in the 1960s. And I loved one line in particular. I was interviewing John Lodge from the Moody Blues. Oh, yeah. And he was saying that when he was 19, he told his friends that he was going to make music his career. And they all said to him, well, that's great, but what are you going to do when you're 21? <laughs> this was not going to last more than a couple of years. And here you are talking about playing with Billy Joel for 40 plus years. These songs have just lived on and on, and they'll live on forever. 100%. You know, Tony Bennett calls them the walking American songbook, which is to me, first of all, you're talking about one of the quintessential voices of the 50s and 60s. T Tony Bennett I mean, people say what they say. They love Sinatra. They love all the greats. Tony Bennett, to me, had a smoothness about him and uh, uh, his interpretations, his phrasing. He was so on the backside of He backphrased so beautifully. In fact, when uh, people ask me about the last play at Shea, they say, what would have made it better? So the only thing that would have been more pleasing to me is if my mom was alive to see me share a stage with Tony Bennett. And what he said about Billy is absolutely true. Think of, think of this, the, the lyric. I always say Billy's songs are like a three-minute snapshot of different people's lives. And I'll tell somebody, oh, yeah, oh, somebody mentioned a song by Billy. That's the best. I'm the biggest Billy Joel fan. i got to tell you, I've met about a million of the biggest Billy Joel fans. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, it's so wonderful to share these share these. The love, that's what it is. It's just his love for what the music yeah. brings to us is incredible. Yeah, he's quite remarkable. And the fact that you were able to play with Ringo and all the other people that you've played with, you've had a blessed musical career for sure. Yes, amen to that, Robert. <laughs> Hi, everybody. This is Robert Miller, your host. In 1994, I recorded my first album called Miles Behind. It features world-class guest musicians like Randy Brecker of Blood, Sweat and Tears, Anton Figg of The David Letterman Show, Al Foster from Miles Davis's band, and Tim Reese from The Rolling Stones. I'm excited to say that this album has just been released on the internet for the first time. The 10 tracks include originals like Child's Play. Hi, 
plus reimagined covers of Jimi Hendrix's Fire. and Chick Corea's Sea Journey. I'm very proud of this album. It's crossover jazz that's been called hip tight and edgy. I think that captures it. Miles Behind can be streamed on Spotify, Apple, and all the other streaming platforms. As always, I want to thank you all for listening to this podcast and to my music, and keep on rocking. All right. I want to go into the song fest because we got a lot of stuff that we're going to play here. Okay. And in the first one, I asked Mark, I said, okay, come up with stuff by other artists that you really like. And he gave me a list and it was a great list. And we're going to talk about this. The first one that we're playing now is a song by Hendrix off of Axis Bold as Love. This is If Six Was Nine. Sing a song. If the song Tell me why you love this one. Well, first of all, the sound of the recording was tremendous. And philosophically speaking, that song is basically, my favorite line of the song is, fall mountains, just don't fall on me. It's just the idea of, think about that premise now or those words. If we allow other people to be themselves, we'd be much better off. But we're so busy condemning or disagreeing. You know, it's one thing to disagree. If six was nine, well, it would just be upside down. It's what he was saying. The world is like, a, if the sun refused to shine, I don't mind. If all the hippies cut off, I don't care. I've got my own life to live, and I ain't going to copy you. That's individuality, but that's individuality with acceptance of other people. It's very philosophical, because people hear Hendrix, they think like, oh, da-da. they always think that Hendrix was incredibly loud. If you listen to some of the solos on Axis, the tones are soft, yeah. and the subtleties of his, his rhythm playing are incredible. You're absolutely right about that. Jimmy and I, Bray Lauer and I are always listening to say everybody thinks it's all bombastic. And Mitch Mitchell's drumming, he played like a jazz drummer. You know, it's funny you mentioned that. I just had um, Stuart Copeland on the show. Oh. And yeah. Mitch Mitchell is like his favorite drummer of all time. Uh, there you okay? go. <laughs> he thinks he's underappreciated, and I have to agree with that. I'll tell you this little Hendrix vignette. We talked about Greenwich Village, and I used to go down to the Cafe Wa when I was a, a teenager. And I remember there was a house band one night. Why do I remember this? Because they had a left-handed guitar player. And I never saw a left-handed guitar player before. And fast forward about a year later, all of a sudden, Jimi Hendrix emerges. He comes back from England under the tutelage of Chaz Chandler from The Animals. Right. He's now Jimi Hendrix. And I see a picture of him. I say, wait a minute. This is the left-handed the- <laughs> guitar player from the Wah. Oh. It was a mind-blowing experience. Amazing. But you're right. Jimi Hendrix was just, you couldn't even explain just what he meant to music at that time. No, no doubt. No doubt. All right. Let's go to the next one. You picked a Beatles song, and you picked a really interesting one. This is from Revolver. This is Tomorrow Never Knows, which is the, the out song, if you will, on Revolver. It is not dying. It is 
Tell me why you picked this one. Well, two things. It's the out song of Revival, but did you know it was the first song to be recorded in that session? I did not know that, no. Yeah, and it was at the time where, uh, if I remember right, it was just around when the uh, engineer, Jeff Emmerich, Right. Jeff Emmerich was first starting to, to to really go past what was accepted. He was sticking these ribbon mics and bass drums and doing all this insane stuff. And again, I guess I'm more philosophical than I realized, but uh, turn off your mind, relax and float downstream. It's not dying. It's, it's, it's a sense of acceptance. You know where he got that from? I just read about this. It's Tibetan Book of the Dead. Yeah. You know what always was amazing to me? You take McCartney and Lennon, two of the greatest songwriters and musicians of all time, right up there, of course, with a Billy Joel. They had no musical training to speak of at all. How could a guy like John Lennon do that, huh? It's here, Robert. It's your ears. It's 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 in your soul. Yeah. People ask me about like when did you learn to sing or how did you how do you move? You cannot teach someone to have good pitch, to sing in tune or to dance in time. You either have that rhythm, that sense of rhythm inside of you. It's a gift. It really is a gift. John's melodies, well, the first time, it won't be long, yeah, yeah. The first time I heard that, it's like, okay, this this English dude with long hair is giving me back black music. Right. You know, it's like, wow, mind-boggling. But he crafted this, and that was that was his thing. It, it's... It's so hard to say how they did it without training. Now, I have to believe that Paul had more, I guess, background because he played piano. His father, I believe, played piano or trumpet. Father was a jazz musician, right? Jazz musician. So there, were, there had to have been, whether or not they studied or whether or not they spent a dollar in lessons, I think is not the point. The fact that they had to drive. I remember reading the stories about John and Paul having their guitars in a, probably in a brown paper bag and going to some record shop to hear it was like a maybe a major two chord going to five. It's like, wow, what's that? Or like a minor six chord. Why does that sound like, or half diminished chord? They didn't know what it was. Right. But they sat there and no, move that finger. I, I believe that they literally would move each other's fingers or press the dots until they got that's the sound. And that sound they developed. They went home in a day, in an hour, they had written a song around a particular two chords that they heard. And that's something that you cannot teach. I, I don't care if they went to Berkeley, they couldn't have learned that. Right about there's, no that. Pla- there's no place to learn that. You know what I always was amazed at? Paul McCartney recently, as he was talking about their time together, he said that they would meet, you know, specifically to come up with a new song. And right. there was never a time that they didn't come up with a new song in whatever the time was that they allotted to themselves, two or three. And they remembered it too. I mean, I don't know about you, but I have the hardest time remembering what I've come up with. Thank God I've got an iPhone that I can sing it into. Well, again, I mentioned Jimmy three times. Bray Lauer's always got his iPhone or his watch. Right. Uh, a couple of songs on the record we did uh, a long time ago. He the, the vocal was something that I sang in the room. Ryan Shaw, his, the great singer. Jimmy just pressed his iPhone. That's how you capture it. The crazy thing, though, if you think about it, the Beatles, what I've read again is that they would write a song in in an hour or whatever, or, or at night they might have written in a night they might have written three songs. The next day, if they couldn't remember the melody, they didn't think, figure it wasn't worth it. That was their their te- remember the old gray whistle test. You know about that, right? Yes. The old gray whistle test with the old grays with the guys who wore the gray suits in uh, in London at the record companies. The A and R people would have these, basically the old grays were like guys who clean the baskets or just bring in the mail. And they play a song, it goes to the verse and the chorus, and they'd ask the kid, can you whistle that? Okay, if you can whistle it, it's a a melody that's memorable. If they couldn't whistle it, they didn't bother with it. So it's called the old gray whistle test, and it's for real. I heard about that. They didn't have tape recorders. They didn't have little cassette players. They didn't have... But they had the ears, and they had the they had the tenacity to keep going at it. They had the talent. That's what they had. All right, let's go to the next one. You mentioned traffic. I love traffic, uh, just like you, and apparently like Billy. And we're playing now "Freedom Rider," which was, uh, I think, on John Barleycorn. Like a hurricane around you. 
what a wonderful song. Tell me about that. John Barleycorn was supposed to be Stevie Winwood's first solo record. He was already writing things that he thought were gonna, he was going to move on. And they got back. At that point, it was just the three of them, I believe. I don't think Mason was in the band anymore. It was Chris Wood, Capaldi, and, and Stevie Winwood. And that song in particular, first of all, Capaldi's groove is so deep. I love his playing. Stevie's voice is, to me, one of the greatest white soul singers. And I wanted to be everybody in that band. I wanted to be Stevie Winwood because of how he sang and how his playing and stuff. I wanted to be Chris Wood because, oh, there's a saxophone and a flute finally in a rock and roll band. Because up until then, there was well, the Dave Clark Five had a tenor, but there wasn't like there wasn't something that was featured. So that song had I could play it for you, but it's just one of those things that the sax ident. Like a hurricane around your heart, with lightning started torn apart. All that's living in love It's like three modulated before you even got to the chorus. These yeah. guys were like deep, and I just love that song. Um, I have a band called Glad, and we do that whole John Barleycorn record. That song in particular just has so much to it. And it has a great flute solo. Look, you're right about everything you said. The fact that they featured Chris Wood in the band and, you know, he was in and around the melodies all the time. And, you know, it was a wonderful thing. And Steve Winwood's voice is just a force of nature. I mean, for people to think about the fact that he sang Give Me Some Love and at what, 16 years of age with that voice? Sixteen years old. How crazy is that? How about somebody help me yet? Won't somebody tell me what I've done wrong? That's when I was just a little boy of seventeen. He was seventeen singing it. It sounded like a forty-year-old dude talking about his. He just had so much. He had it, baby. No question about it. One of my favorite artists of all time. I agree with you on that. All right, let's do one more in this first song fest. And we're playing now Stan by Sly and the Family Stone. Need I say more? <laughs> no, you really don't, but I want to hear. A stand with me. I saw Sly a couple of times, and the thing was, they were so, it, it was, it's just this assault of funk, and it was just motion and horns. And uh, Freddie's voice was incredible. Get Larry Graham on the bass, yeah. and Rich, was it Rico? No, I can't remember the drummer's name now, but a white dude that played sideways on his drum kit. And one bass drum, he just had the funkiest stay, and at the end, yeah, stay, stay. It's like I played this in a band with a tremendous guitarist in Brooklyn, Kenny Papa, and a drummer, John Guarneri. May he rest in peace. His name was he went by the name John Garner. He was in a band called Sir Lord Baltimore back in the 70s, I think. But we had a, a little R&B band, and we played stand. Four guys, guitar, bass, drums, and a saxophone, not even a keyboard, the four guys, and we, two of us sang. But at the end of stand, we played at some drug rehab place for a big party of some kind. Well, we hit the end of stand, it went off for like 10 minutes, and people couldn't stop dancing and grooving. It was all over. So stand was just like, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? It was undeniable. Yeah, Sly was undeniable. Once Sly gets to hire any one of those great songs, it was fantastic. 
And another great song out of that whole time was Everybody is a star. Yeah. Because he's saying, again, we're all in this together. And he was That's another right. one who was trying to bring the black and white thing together, I thought. Yes. And um, the music just made that. But don't you think it's sad that, you know, what happened to him afterwards? He just of kind course. of vanished from the scene. And I've read about it recently. You know, it, it just it never worked out for him. And it was just too bad. Well, drug catastrophe. Yeah. Drug catastrophe. Uh, same as uh, Chris Wood, when we talked before, uh, the book I was reading. I had to put the book down. It was so depressing. They called it uh, Tragic Magic. Heroin or Coke. Well, these the, the, Those guys just couldn't get out of it. It's very unfortunate. Yeah, so many musicians got trapped in all of this. Yeah, yeah. And yet a guy like Keith Richards is a walking <laughs> testament to the body's immune system, I guess. Amen, amen. <laughs> that this man is still alive. Amen. All right, this is a fantastic Songfest one. Let's go to the second Songfest. This is the stuff that features you. And the first thing that we're playing now is Sledgehammer. Okay, tell me about that one. Sledgehammer, uh, that was that was an incredible uh, session. What had happened was I I, I was playing at Tracks. Remember the, the club Tracks in Manhattan uh -huh. on 72nd Street? And uh, there was a young lady we were backing. First of all, the band was tremendous. It was myself, Jimmy Rip, who turned out, who went on to be a, a Mick Jagger's MD in the solo bands. This gentleman, Yogi Horton, the drummer, may he rest in peace. Bet Sussman, who was... Uh, Whitney Houston's musical director, tremendous talent. So it's just this great band backing this young lady who's a singer. Turns out at the end of the night, her boyfriend at the time said, uh, can I get your number one of these days? Uh, I might have a session for you. Yeah, sure. I don't think about it. Fast forward a few years, he calls, uh, I think it might have been Radio Registry, he called. And he says, yeah, it's Jimmy Phelan. Uh, I'm now representing producers, and I'd like you to come down and do a session. I'm thinking... Well, I hope it's not for his girlfriend because she, you know, just mediocre. No, man, it, uh, I want you to come down to the power station. Uh, I'm representing Daniel Lenoir, and he's doing Peter Gabriel's new record. I'm like, whoa, that's it. So I get into the session, and myself and um, Wayne Jackson, may he rest in peace. Uh, You're saying that too much, okay? I know, but you know, again, what am I going to say? Not mention that he's passed. Wayne Jackson no, from Memphis Horns, okay? Yep. So the two of us in the room, and Peter and the trombone player, I can't remember his name now, but Peter Gabriel presses the talk back is, just play the first thing that comes into your head. And the, the track at that time was only, another well, Tony Levin, Manu Cachet, uh, some guitar and some synths. I think Larry Fast might have been, uh, I'm not sure who was on the keyboards at the time. But anyway, it was just a groove. And if you listen to the song, it's an E flat. And my brain goes right to what a tone that I hear. And the first thing I swear that came out of it, and Peter's like, put thumbs up, this is great. So we double track, double track, go to the next one. So now, what am I thinking about in E flat? Very superstitious, writing <laughs> on the wall. That's where it came from. But that's what I heard. So, that's the intro. Yeah. You got it, baby. Well, I, I was very, that's one of my favorite moments in the studio of all time, I have to say. <laughs> well, when it comes to you and it works, that's that's all you can ask for. That's exactly right. Just stay out of your own way. <laughs> <laughs> all right, let's go to the second one. This is Urgent.
Tell me about this one. I'd already uh, worked with Mutt Lang with the band Tycoon. And uh, fast forward, Tycoon, I went for like about, we had mild, moderate success. And um, the band broke up, did whatever it did. And I was working at the record plant, all these different things had come and gone. Uh, so now I'm back doing the hustle. And Mutt Lang, who I'd become friends with, I still keep in touch with, calls my apartment. I just come back again from tracks. I was playing tracks that night again with the same rhythm section. So it was a very, like a good luck drum. So I come up my sixth floor walk up that I was living in at the time, and the phone rings before the entrance. I said, Hello. He goes, Marcus, it's Mutt. How are you? I said, Man, I'm great. What, what's going on? He goes, I'd like to know if you could come down to Electric Lady Studios. I said, Yeah, man, what do you want me to do? He goes, Well, right now, I said, Mud, I'm shagged. I just got finished playing three sets of tracks. I'm kind of tired. And I'm, like, oh, I'm, I'm recording Foreigner's new record. I'm, oh, click up the phone. I'll be there in 20 minutes. <laughs> get in the cab. I get in the cab, bring my tenor. And the crazy thing about that is, not unlike with, with uh, Sledgehammer, I get in there. My horn was still kind of warm because I just finished playing three sets. So Mud plays a track. He goes, there's just a bit of four measure here and an eight measure here. It's just you and the drums. So allow, listen to the track and I'm going to start getting sound. You know, you get your headphone mixed, you get all this stuff out of the way. So when the time came, like, you know, he pointed to me, this is where, in other words, said, this is where the bits are going to be. And I heard it and I started, and when I played, play that. Okay. Then the next thing, but then it goes, and then there's Junior Walker solo, which is the iconic solo. As it turns out, Mick and Lou, I just met Mick and Lou for the first time, and they were like, you know, in the other room, oh, we're going to go inside, we're going to play some foosball until he starts taking some takes for serious. They had some vodka, they were having a good time. So he'd come back in every 20 minutes. Oh, try this, and can you double track that and harmonize that and this and that and the other thing? Four hours passed, and now it's like about four o'clock in the morning, seriously. And Mutt calls everybody back into the control room. He said, I'd like you to hear something. And he presses play. And the bit comes. It's exactly what you hear on the record. And Mick is like, that's great. It's like Morse code. It's fantastic. That's brilliant. What? And Mutt said, that's the first thing he did when he walked in the room. You can't make this stuff up, Robert. Oh, man. Four hours later. First thing, yeah. you know? I find that happens all the time. You go into the studio, you play it the first time. You say, all right, let's do it again. Let's do it again. And then you go back and you say, you know what? That first time, we it was fresh. We did it right. Well, again, I keep quoting Jimmy. He says you're reacting. And that reaction that you have or the reactivity that you have in the moment with the music, once you're pulled into or, or guided somewhere, you're already like a third person in this, in this conversation. But when you're playing, it's like when you play live. There's nothing like playing live because a drummer does something or a bass player, and you're like, yeah. And you're responding. It's a, Music is a conversation. It's always a conversation. And the best way to be in a conversation is to be attentive, be present. And you're yep. present in that moment. And that's what came out. That track was a smash. As soon as I walked in and I'm listening, getting the headphones, I'm like, holy crap. I like, because up until then, I'm like, you play this, a, a session for here, the, 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 the uh, different sessions that I'd done were like, you know, down here somewhere. But once I heard, once it was foreign, the band Tycoon wanted to be foreign. I mean, cold as ice, everybody wanted to be Lou Graham. You know what I mean? <laughs> All right, you got it, baby. All right, we're going to play two Billy songs in a row here. The first one is Tell Her About It. You're a big boy now and you'll never let her go. But that's just the kind of thing she ought to know. Tell her about it. Tell her everything you feel. Give her every reason to accept that you're for real. And then Uptown Girl. Uh, 
Tell me your recollections on these two. Oh, the first one, tell her about it, was an incredible session, just an amazing session because Phil Ramone, it was the first time that I'd been to the studio with Billy, and Phil Ramone knew the song. Tell her about it. It was like, it's just this great swing. Right. And in the room, we cut into Chelsea Studios, and I think there were 14 people live, a live session, which you never, three people don't even play live anymore. Now, back then, we had 14 people. We had Richard T. on piano, Leon Pendarvis on, on, on organ. You had Eric Gale, one other guitarist, David Brown. Yeah, three guitars, if I remember right. David Brown, Eric Elman. And everybody's Russell. playing together at the same Every, time? It's a live session. You couldn't even have 14 isolation booths. You were all playing in no, one room, No, it was live. It. it was live. We okay. had six horns. John Faddis, Michael Brecker, David Sanborn, myself, Ronnie Kuba, four saxophones. Ronnie Kuba on, on, ten, on Barry. Uh, I was on tenor. Michael Breck was lead tenor and David Sanborn. John Faddis, and I forget, there's one more trumpet. So there's six horns. And Billy's in an ISO booth singing, and Liberty's playing drums. And the reason it sounds so great is because of how much leakage there was. It was, and then after that was done, myself, Eric Troyer, and Rory Dodd sang all the background. But it had that live sound to it. Tell me, you have four saxes. Did everybody have a written out part, or how did you work that? Oh, no, everything was written. And, and, and Frankly, my reading is very poor. I mean, when I was a kid in, in, in high school, I went to performing arts. I had to read, so I read and I read and I read. But I'm mildly dyslexic, so my reading, I don't trust my I don't trust my eyes. I trust my ears. So while everybody saw Neil Sanborn, they're playing up the scale, Michael Breckett, I'm like, holy shit. I'm in this <laughs> session with these monsters, and I'm thinking to myself, am I going to, again, am I going to cut it? The same Thoughts that I had when I went down the steps at, at, at Ladyland. Am I worthy of this? Am I going to cut it? And um, so I played it and I read it and read it. But I got the parts in my head. And I started making up words. Da -da -da -da. You got to go. If I see something like the phrase of some kind, I, I have the melodies or the, the phrases in my head. But that came together. And that, I think there was the second take. Because the first take, they were still getting sound and they were asking, like, maybe move people around. Because you couldn't just. It's like the old days, the, the Motown stuff. They were like four horns. Oh, your trumpet's a little loud. On uh, the second verse, turn away from the mic a little bit. There's some great, great photographs. Stevie Wonder with one microphone in the room. You know, one of the things that I've talked about with other people, we're talking now about Motown. Think about the sound that they got from basically a basement. That's all yeah. it was. Okay. Exactly. It wasn't built as a studio. It was built as a house with a basement. Unbelievable, huh? Yeah. I mean, all that stuff was just ins insane. And the sound was so incredible. And it's usually like one or two mics. Yeah. Did they have a four track? I don't know. But, you know, back then, I've talked about this as well. To make an edit, you had to take the tape and slice it and then splice it together. I yeah. mean, think about it. It's like prehistoric compared to what you've got now. I know. And again, we're not talking about... Uh, a 24, uh, like a two-inch tape that you cut on a diagonal. We're talking about a two-track tape. We're talking about a piece of tape that thick. Yeah. And you're cutting two tracks, so you find a way to find the beat, and you hope that... You hope it works. <laughs> exactly. I, I can't even imagine how many how many trials and errors, it, you know. It's unbelievable. But just think about the what the music was that came out of that era with all the limitations that we talk about now, and yet it was just incredible. Okay? Absolutely. All right. So you, you're in the studio. You you cut this one track. Tell me about Uptown Girl. Uptown Girl is the same thing. The, the track was already done. Uh, that was Billy's That was Billy's band. Uh, Liberty, Doug, Russell, David, and that was it. And, and Billy played piano. So they had done the track. Billy sang, sang the uh, vocal. But then we go in there and we... Um, Myself, Eric Troyer, and Rory Dodd sang all the backgrounds, and we each sang every part. Each of us sang the same three or four parts, triple. So those are three voices singing every bit up throughout. 
Now, were you singing each of those parts in unison, or were you doing it in harmony? All unison. Okay. All unison, and the blend was like this. Yeah. It's like the uh, Billy's uh, Four Seasons. (laughs) (laughs) But again, it was such a great time. Phil Ramon was so so gracious and again i was i was a new kid and i got to do so much on that record in fact i think those are two of billy's number one songs you told me leading up to this he doesn't have that many number ones does he i think i think i think those two we didn't start the fire it's still still rock and roll to me so how incredible is that yeah unbelievable you wouldn't think about that but Look, again, that songbook that he's come up with, uh, with your help, of course, just remarkable. Again, what's incredible is the time, the, the, the times, uh, or the, the music that he was up against, I think, uh, was a Thriller or Olivia Newton-John's biggest records that kept him at number two. Uh, it, it's like, it, it's not as though he didn't have the goods. It was just, the, the, it, it was, the pond was so full and so fresh. There was a lot of fish in that pond, you know. And- a lot of fish in that pond. All right, tell me about this, because I've always wondered. I think the last album that he cut of rock songs, I'll call them, was like in the mid-'80s, wasn't it? Uh, River of Dreams? River of Dreams is 93, I think, and it's 30 years. Okay. I think it's 93 and 92. I'm not, not sure. Why did he stop there? What was the reason? He was just done. I think... Again, I I would never speak for Billy, but I think once you're at a point where you feel like you've done really, really well, and critics are such hard asses that they just, I mean, the title of critic, so I'm just going to be critical. People want to shoot down. And Billy, when he was going through the most turbulence, wrote the best music. He had all these things to bounce around, and his head was like full of all these different ideas. And the struggles that he went through, uh, I won't get into them, but every struggle that he went through, he was able to rise above. And then maybe at 93, he might have said, I'm done. I don't want to compete with myself. I don't want I don't want somebody to tell me how it's not as good as what's their favorite. Your favorite, that's your, it's like, what flavor ice cream do you like? I like strawberry. So does that mean somebody who likes chocolate is wrong? So it's just a sense, I think it's a sense of like, he was done listening to the crap that people were going to say about him and he just and 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 frankly if you would have told me in 93 that in 2023 we'd be doing this to the extent that we're selling out football stadiums and we're going to be playing uh with stevie nicks on wednesday uh friday rather and then next year we're doing some dates with sting hello there's something to be said about did he did he really ever need to write new songs? And, and frankly, I hope we do some new material because it could be it could be a great time. I I I never say never. I'll, I'll tell you that much. I equate this a little bit to what a couple of guys did in the sitcom area. It's like when Jackie Gleason said at the end of thirty nine episodes of Honeymooners, that's it, we're done. And when uh, John Cleese at the end of I think seventeen episodes of Faulty Towers said, I can't do better. But that's one of the greatest. One of the greatest, exactly. And uh, I can understand where, where somebody like Billy would say, okay, I've done what I wanted to do, and uh, that's it. Thank you. Thank you very much. <laughs> Thank you very much. That's that's the body of work. And I hope we pass the audition. <laughs> I hope we pass the, exactly so. All right, listen, we have been speaking here with Mark Rivera, a true force of nature. Mark, you're just an incredible guy, and I want to thank you so much, not only for being on this podcast, but for all this great music that you've made. Unbelievable. Robert, you're, you're a gentleman. And Jimmy is right. He said, you're going to love Robert. Because the thing is, you get these moments that you do a podcast and you get the feeling that somebody's got this script. And, and then what did you do? And then, you know, this is this is this is us jamming. That's right. This is just jamming. It's great. And by the way, I have a book out. Hopefully that somebody is going to mention. Uh, Go ahead. Tell me. Sideman in pursuit of the next gig. It's basically me opening up about the highs and lows and the balance between this, quote, rock star life that people think I lead and this life of a, a father, a husband. It's a crazy fine line. And it's a it's a balancing act on like a, a hair. I can imagine. And I've been very blessed. I'm 
40 years. I'm married 40 years, Robert. Good for you. Congratulations. And the book, I assume, is available on uh, Amazon and all the other places? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Fantastic. And the forward, the forward was written by Ringo Starr. You're making me sick here with jealousy, I have to tell you. <laughs> all right. We've been speaking again here with Mark Rivera, an incredible musician. And we're going to play again right now the song that I featured at the beginning of this episode. It's my song called Hey Jake. I want to thank you all for listening, and we'll see you in the next episode. Peace and love, Robert. Thanks for listening to the Follow Your Dream podcast. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast so you don't miss another inspiring episode. You can connect with Robert at robert at followyourdreampodcast.com. And you can hear more from his band at projectgrandslam.com. Oh,